You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Clear the aisles, the projectionist asks me, hi, I'm here with Yitzhak Kovakowski, and although you won't be hearing this, of course, until next week, we are recording here, and outside of my window, there are the sounds of fireworks. It is July 4th. But hopefully when we hear these explosions, what we're thinking about, of course, is the battle, the fight, how much freedom was precious and what we fought for. And I, I, there were two, a film and a television program that I watched that gave me such confidence and such a shot in the arm about hope against I, I think what we are hearing from the leftist press consistently of how terrible and how we're hearing it from our politicians about how how endemically racist our society is to a film from 1949 and a television show from 30 years later from 1979. The film I'm talking about is Clarence Brown's Intruder in the Dust, based on the 1948 novel by William Faulkner that was set in that fictional county in Mississippi. And it is a story that really is was pertinent for the time, and I think it's still pertinent today. It is really a look back to the Jim Crow, angry South, and the attitudes that they had towards Blacks of all sizes and shapes, the attitudes of the Southern cracker, but also the possibilities of hope, the possibilities of friendship, uh, this is a film that Juano Hernandez really hit it out of the park as a dignified, somewhat flawed black person. Ralph Ellison said this was the only film he'd ever seen that could be shown in Harlem without the guffaws and sneers of the audience. This was a, show, a program that showed uh, the black Americans in a way that was accurate and did not bend over backwards to lay hosannas on the noble Negro. And and, and Faulkner was, again, a, a true Southerner who understood the evil around him, but was able to find humanity. Faulkner, of course, a Nobel Prize winner. And this novel, which is a short one, and it's told from a couple of different perspectives, was really translated to the screen wonderfully. Clarence Brown wanted to make this film. Clarence Brown was a Tennessean. He was a proud graduate of the University of Knoxville. He lived to be 97 years old. And of course, he had been a silent film a director, writer, actor. We talked about Clarence Brown, Yitzchak, if you remember, as the director of National Velvet. This film I, I, it was a film he was passionate to make. It was a film that MGM, Sam Goldwyn, did not want to make. Uh, Dory Sherry, who we've talked about before on this platform, uh, the Newark-raised uh, Jewish executive at MGM, he was a, a very spiritual and understanding person. And with the combined efforts of Dory Sherry and Clarence Brown, not only did this film get made, but it got made in Oxford, Mississippi at the Lyric Theater there. It had its world premiere. Many of the Oxford Mississippians were actually extras in the film. Juan Hernandez plays this 
this black man, who in the book was actually referred to by Faulkner as a mulatto. A mulatto was someone who had uh, was a, from mixed blood. In fact, the story is it's the exposition which is provided in the film by uh, Claude Jarman Jr., who plays, of course, Yitzchuk, you remember him from The Yearling, another film that Clarence Brown made. I think, I think Clarence Brown actually discovered him. And, you know, you know, we talked about uh, Brandon DeWild, who was in HUD, of course, and in Shane. And I think these two kids, you know, were not your Freddie Bartholomew, you know, types of like, like adults in child's bodies. They were really part of the 1940s real kids. They looked like kids, they acted like kids, and they were part of a natural type of acting. And in this film, he's a couple of years older. He's already somewhat of an awkward teenager, but he knows what he knows. And he knows the world that he was brought into and that he has black servants in his home. He has a best friend who's obviously an underling that he treats like an underling. And then he meets this black man. In Faulkner's story and in the movie, he fell into into a, a frozen iced pond that was on incredibly the property of Louis B. Kemp, who is the character Juan Hernandez plays. How does he happen to have 10 acres of property in Mississippi when so many of the other Blacks live in small little sheds like sharecroppers? It's because he was, I mean, Faulkner's novel, he's actually the son of the slave master indicating that the slave owner had had relations with his mother producing him. And therefore he felt he was going to do the right thing by after the civil war, actually uh, giving it to the, to, to Lewis's grandfather who had been the child of, of the slave owner in the film, they make sure to say a cousin, but clearly he has a pride and he is a black man. But what it is, is that the assumption, of course, is the black man is guilty. And, the, and of course, the N-word is used by many number of characters in this film. They did not try on the uh, on TCM, where I saw it, to try to edit out that word. There was no introduction beforehand. Uh, it's, it's, it's an important part of the film. So if any of you out there feel that this is a type of word you cannot hear, then you should realize it is going to be used, and it's used properly, because this was a accurate portrayal of what life was like. And again, the evidence is quite damning. However, uh, Claude Jarman's character, Chick, has a relationship with this man. As I said, he fell into his pond and the man saved him. In a scene that's almost a line-by-line recreation of Faulkner's page, the boy recounts how he was brought to the cabin, how he was warmed, how he was commanded to strip his clothes off, the uncomfortability of having to strip in front of a black person, to be covered by blankets, to be given a black person's food, to be saved by the black person. And then the most essential part of this film, which is very dramatic and has a lot of great lines, but here are the the part of the film that is, there are no lines. And it's the strongest part of the film in my mind is when the boy reaches into his his wet pants pockets, tries to discover some coins, which he feels he must do, because he can't just take a favor from a black man in this way. He needs to pay the black man. The darkie needs to be paid off, of course. He has to be given the tip for the service that he did to the white man. 
And when he comes by with these with these coins in his hand, Lewis, Juan Hernandez's character, won't even look at them. He says, what is that? Of course, he knows exactly what it is. And he is so stunned that he drops the coins. And Brown, the director, then gives you a close-up. And of course, by the way, the cinematography was done by David Sutras, who was the award-winning cinematographer for Ben-Hur. Although Ben-Hur, of course, was in color. This is in very stark black and white. You can see the the care of every single shot, the way it was planned out. Well, as these coins drop, and you can see a close-up of the coin rolling, the the tension is so thick it can be be cut with a knife because this is the moment that the white boy, the new generation, the generation that will eventually lead the nation, has to understand that these people have dignity are just like them. Even when they do an act of kindness, it needs to be accepted and understood as a brother, not as someone who is the other and someone who that act of kindness is so beyond the pale that it needs to be compensated for. Well, he he attempts to send him gifts, and in, in, in it's this all told in flashback. And it seems like over the months that he sees him, he he comes to this begrudging admiration for this man, the way he walks, the fact that he goes into all white stores and demands his tobacco, the shirt and the jacket and the hat that he wears. He's different than any other black person in the in the community. And he knows, and everyone knows that this generates ire among all the white residents. The the film has a, a co-star, a third star, the his uncle, the lawyer, and he's sort of, I guess, in a way, the second POV. He also assumes, like everyone does, that, that Lewis is guilty. And, and Lewis himself, when the lawyer is pushed into taking his case, and the lawyer comes to the courthouse, he won't hear anything. He doesn't want to hear Lewis's side of the story. And Lewis understands he can't tell him his side of the story. As Lewis says, you're too full of ideas. You're too full of notions. You're, you're too full of preconceived ideas to even hear the truth. Because even though he's well-meaning and he's not the, the vile bigot that the others are in town, he also has an attitude that he knows Lewis does is not going to be able to be, is not going to be able to be put down just by words. There, it needs to happen gradually. And again, this is really again a metaphor uh, for, for the, for the society. Part of what Lewis tells the boy is that the proof that he is not the killer is that the bullet that is in this back of this white man is not the bullet from his gun. The gun that he owns is a Colt pistol. And the bullet, he says, will be the bullet of a rifle, which is completely different. And then the drama is, how will they dig up this body? You know, a trip to the graveyard ensues. And it's done by Chick, by his servant, sort of, the the black boy who lives in his house, the son of the maid, and by a very uh, a very strong white character, a little old lady, Mrs. Habersham, who sounds like she's out of a, a Dickens novel, who 
somehow, and of course, maybe Faulkner fills it in in the novel, and perhaps she's a character in some of the other stories about these this group of people that Faulkner wrote. But for some reason, she is the noble woman who refuses to accept that he is guilty. And she has a very old car, and it's that car that is able to uh, be used to transport the heroes to the graveyard, along with a horse as well. And it's there that they realize that things aren't what they seem when they get to the grave and the digging up of the grave. And it soon becomes apparent that indeed there is a miscarriage of justice. And uh, when the sheriff, played by Will Gill, sees the evidence, and indeed they do pick out a rifle bullet, then of course they have to discover who the real murderer is. And all I can tell you is, is that this film that was made in 1949, uh, in many ways, it foreshadows Sergeant Rutledge, 1960s John Ford, anti-racist film, and To Kill a Mockingbird in 1963. So this is really a, a film that has elements of both of those and precedes them. And it's interesting that many people do not know about it. They know about To Kill a Mockingbird. Some of them might know about Sergeant Rutledge. So although the film does not have anyone close to the dignity and power of Gregory Peck's Atticus Finch, David Bryan, who plays sort of a similar type of figure, a lawyer who's willing to represent the black man, you know, again, he does not have any of that type of gravitas, but the film still works. And in many ways has, like I said, it's been superseded. And I would say it even has a very similar scene to one of the most moving scenes of To Kill a Mockingbird, where uh, Scout Finch shows up at the courthouse where everyone is waiting to lynch the black man, and she shames them. There is a very similar scene uh, that occurs in this film. And, and so in, I really believe that, that people in Hollywood look to Intruder in the Dust as the type of film that could portray um, accurately, sympathetically, realistically, the plight of the Black person in the United States. And at the same time, uh, although, you know, many Blacks, I think, will criticize this film for the white savior attitude, the film makes clear that it's the whites who need to change their attitude. There is a little bit of blame on the Black man for trying to push the envelope. But ultimately, as the film ends, it's clear that this was meant to be a message that we need to change our way of looking at the world. And there, there is a sense of hope and possibility. Yes, in 1949, in Oxford, Mississippi, and in many places in the South, rabid racism still was the rule. But there were voices being spoken against it. And there was change that was in the air. I think especially in the post-war era, there was more voices against racism, you know, that were new at that time. It was something, it was something that, that was coming up. And it, it might have been, as we've talked about on this program, it's like a byproduct of the Black contribution in World War II. It was maybe a sense of the unity of the United States that was necessary to, 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 to look at itself in the mirror as a superpower. 
and also understanding of, of what the Nazis did, and you know, the- right? Exactly. The fact was that the Nazis was built on the ugly racism and genocidal mentality to destroy the Jews. I think obviously that we all know that our tribe's involvement in the civil rights movement was immense. And that contribution, I think, has, you know, been, been stated and in many ways been monsterized by, by others who felt again that the, the Jews had perhaps pushed things in a, in the wrong direction. It's, it's, it's a film that builds tension. Uh, you are s- somewhat surprised at the identity of the murderer, and it, it, the film doesn't really give it away. And and when it comes, you know, it, it, it saddens you. It's interesting that if I compare this film to To Kill a Mockingbird, in To Kill a Mockingbird, of course, the black man was on trial for raping or attempted rape of a white woman, and the father of the girl is the villain. He's the one who, of course, in To Kill a Mockingbird, you know, he uses the end lover word and he's the one who tries to attack the children on that Halloween night and are saved, of course, by uh, Robert Duvall playing Boo Radley and I think his, his screen debut. In this film, there's also a father of the man who is killed and unlike the grotesque image of To Kill a Mockingbird, this is definitely someone who is imbued by racism, but there's a certain humanity. He's played as someone who has lost his arm, and there's a wonderful scene moving, really, when they realize the body has been dug out of the grave and disposed into a a pool of quicksand. And when the father realizes this, he runs with an energy and he wants to find his boy, his boy who was shot, who was a racist and was not a good person. But to see the way the father jumps into the quicksand uh, to save his, to get the body of his son, even though he himself might might go into the quicksand, it parallels very much the beginning of the film where Claude Jarman's character falls into this water and is pulled out by the black man. So the idea of falling, being pulled back out, I think it, it's a motif that continues to the film. And in, in many ways, like the coins that fall and roll, the idea of, of, of progress, because that racist father who jumps into the quicksand is different when he gets pulled out and is able to cover his son's eyes. And in many ways, he helps discover who the actual murderer is. Uh, spoilers, I don't want to <laughs> spoil the ending. But I think it is, like I said, a, a, a worthwhile film that I understand why Clarence Brown thought it would make a difference for America. Before you get to your pick, Yitzhak, I also want to mention something from 1979. And I heard about it on a program that was dedicated to Harry Belafonte after his death earlier this year. And we have, of course, highlighted um, Odds Against Tomorrow, which I felt is one of the best late noirs. And I also spoke about the world of flesh and the devil. That's right. Also. That is true. We talked about it this year. So we, we like Harry Belafonte on, on this show. If you want to feel positive about race relations in the United States and realize that we were on a very good arc 
hey, you should take a look at the third season of The Muppets, the 1979 program that has Harry Belafonte as the guest star. It was a show that is very, is different than almost all the other Muppet shows. You know, this was a program, The Muppet Show, that uh, had to be produced independently. None of the networks wanted it. But as soon as the show took off, there were so many actors and actresses that wanted to be on the show. Most of them did not have the type of editorial or real sort of producer-like power that Belafonte asked for. Uh, Belafonte did not make so many television appearances. He didn't need it to sell, wasn't trying to sell records or to, to promote a movie. He wasn't just a brand new person. He was a person really who's, who's, you could say his best years were 25 years in the past. And yet he, he admired Jim Henson's artistry. He admired what Jim Henson was able to do. But really Harry Belafonte in this, in this has two incredible segments. Uh, the the segment where he takes on animal uh in sort of a drum off contest him harry on his bongos and animal on his full drum set is amusing and it's cute but it, 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 harry does the banana song and fozzy i think was probably the best that i've seen him but the, i think the scene that that most everyone remembers of course is the last uh, eight minutes, which I think are different than any other Muppet program. And that is where Fozzie, it starts off with Fozzie talking with uh, Harry Belafonte about the struggle of writing, of being creative. And Harry tells him about his travels to Africa and to Guinea, where he met a shaman or a, or, or a wise man who told him a story that was an ancient story, an ancient story about the four elements, the way they were developed by fire and the sea and the wind and the mountain, the, the Dalad Yisodos, as we say in Hebrew, and how each one is interconnected with the other to get the world moving, that all of this turns the earth. And Belafonte says that the message is, is that, that we are all part of this planet. We are all very much the same, despite the way we look, that each of us contribute in a different way. And as he tells the story and he starts singing the song, the Muppet characters uh, start gathering around him. And there's a seamless fade into the characters uh, arriving with what was very seemingly very accurate African masks. A little research uh, this afternoon revealed to me that Henson wanted them not to actually be masks from a certain religious culture because he didn't want to offend anyone, but they were based on the the uh, the religious uh, culture's masks. And it's it's done in a way unlike what you saw like in the 20s and 30s and 40s in Hollywood where this was considered barbarism or something uh, just something strange and terrifying and mysterious. These Muppet characters who come out in the masks and are singing the song of uh, of Turn the World, they it's all it comes together, uh, and and it can only have been sung from from those characters. And what happens is is that as the song really builds and continues, everyone comes out singing it, even Waldorf and and Stadler. Get, get caught up in it and they're not in their usual cynical framework. And that's how the, the end credits end. And I, I know that, uh, um, Yitzhak, you've told me you've seen that last clip often. I never seen it until last night. 
And it, it reminded me that that in 1979, three years after the the bicentennial, almost 50 years ago, it seemed like America was on its way. This was a, a, a such a wonderful way without browbeating in song and in celebration of of the contributions of of of, of our minority members and especially just loving the type of positivity that Harry Belafonte represented. So I, I, I see these two things and I say, you know, <laughs> we've gone off the rails in, in many ways. And I mourn the fact that, that, that we're now in a state where that, that if these statements that I've made today could get me canceled on YouTube. Maybe, maybe at some point, who knows, you know, I recall that scene because there was a, a tape I had as a child of, I think it was the Muppets 30th anniversary. This, this was one of those scenes that was considered to be one of the best. And, and, and what I love about it is that it's not preachy. It doesn't necessarily have to relate directly to this, what's happening in the United States at that time or the, or the rest of the world. And it also is an artistic collaboration between Belafonte and the Muppets. He said afterwards that the Muppets represented the best backup singers that he's ever worked with. And that's that's pretty large praise uh, from, from Belafonte. That's something that I always appreciate more, even though he has a beautiful voice, but more than a nice voice is, is, the, is the heart. You know, whether it's, yes, whether, yes. Whether, whether it's Harry Belafonte, whether it's Johnny Cash, whether it's Gene Autry, a, a, a heart singer, I think it's more important than than maybe someone who has a pretty sounding voice. No, know? no, that's true. He was, he's, and I think that's part of why seeing him live as opposed to a recording is so important. In, in many ways, it is a, it's a wonderful epitaph, really, for, for Belafonte and Really, as I as I as I said, I think it's a it's a way that we can realize that that we have a country that you know is is dedicated you know to the proposition that all men are created equal, and the Creator has indeed endowed us with an unalienable rights. So, Yitzhak, I know you know I've I've said my two picks. Now, you want to actually have a throwback today to something that I think we discussed on one of our programs. It's hard to figure out exactly where it was in the archives, but you want to talk about uh, Vincent Price's turn in one of the episodes of Crossroads, which is all about where uh, religious figures had to had to actually like the cross, as we said. Yeah, they were. It was an anthology series of dramatizations of true stories of American clergymen, and as far as I could find, there were even though they they advertised every week that they had a Catholic, a Protestant, and a Jewish consultant in the series, and someone from JTS consulting. I think there was only two Jewish episodes, which is not bad for a, a show that only was on for two seasons. And I, I don't know if the other one is extant or if it's lost media, but this episode called The Rebel, I always like to go to it uh, for the 4th of July because it tells the story of Gershom Sheshus, who was the Hazan at the Spanish and Portuguese synagogue uh, in New York at Sheshus Israel, and also at Mikveh Israel in Philadelphia. He's he's on the run during the 
revolution. He has to escape to Philadelphia. Actually, actually, he first escaped historically to Connecticut and then to Philadelphia. So he went east and then west uh, because New York was during the Revolutionary War you know, occupied by the British. And one of the Hessian mercenaries was uh, a man named Alexander Zuntz, who was a Hessian and, and a Jew from Germany. And the story goes, and, and it's a true story. They, of course, they dramatize it a bit. But he wrote a letter to Gershom Shashis, knowing full well who he was and what danger his life was in, promising him safe passage back into New York to be Masada Kedushin at his chasana. Mm-hmm. And, and, and they dramatize it quite interestingly. And it's worth seeing. It's only about 25 minutes. It is on my YouTube channel. An interesting bit of history that wasn't in this show, but it's worthwhile to, to watch the show and let the show speak for itself, was that this Alexander Zuntz actually, after the war, became an American citizen, and he davened there in Sherry's Yisrael. He was, and he was the chazan. He had the kavias to be the chazan on Rosh Hashanah, I believe, for Shachris every year. I see. Uh, so he, 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 he kept, you know, he started off as an enemy, but he, he was so misfold to see this great republic that was founded that he decided he didn't want to go back to Germany. He wanted to stay in the good old USA and live a good Yiddish life. Or the, or the good new USA. <laughs> as the case was yeah, then. at that yep. time it was good it was yeah, new <laughs> it was good and new well definitely inspiring and i think this story along with other stories of american history of african-american founders who you know who were active you know maybe even even if they weren't the signers of the declaration of independence but the activities and the contributions that were made by whether it was jewish americans and african-americans and other minorities in the founding really demonstrates that the narrative that's being pushed today of the otherness of minorities, it really is not historically true, meaning at least in the founding, maybe later, you know, America deteriorated from that, you know, founding principle and always was this pendulum was swinging back and forth. But really in the founding, there was quite a diversity of different faiths and different ethnicities and different races. Well, right. In in order to form a more perfect union, right? That's, Yitzchak, your point is very well appreciated by me, and I hope for our listeners as well. The projection is there's always, we are are as pro-USA as you can get, despite our deep, deep connections to the Jewish people and to the land of Israel, of course. We recognize, and although, again, it's way past July 4th and you're listening to this, believe me, we are still marching, we are still feeling, we are still understanding the the, the great gift that God bestowed on the world with the founding of this country. Watch your step on the way out, everybody. We'll catch you next time. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.